Hello and welcome to Where Words Fail, a podcast about music. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Allen Murdoch. He's an internationally known conductor, clinician, and music educator. He currently serves as coordinator of choral and vocal studies, associate professor of music, and director of the Black Music Institute at the University of Arkansas, and he was also the 2021 Grammy Music Educator of the Year. Dr. Murdoch, thank you so much for joining us. So glad to be here. Thank you. So for people listening right now who aren't really familiar with you or don't really know you, can you sort of explain a little bit about yourself and give kind of a a background of kind of your upbringing and and what got you into music and music education as a career? Absolutely. So I'm originally from Biloxi, Mississippi, and um, being from Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, I grew up on what many people would call the wrong side of the tracks. Um, uh, and so I grew up in a very poor family in a, an impoverished neighborhood. Um, but I always was musical. So like, even as a kid, I would go to church and I sang in choirs and I played at Sunday school and I did all of that. Um, I had a family friend who saw that I would be plucking things on the piano by ear and was like, Hey, we need to get this guy some piano lessons. And so we had a family friend who paid for my first piano lesson when I was five. Uh, and then that teacher scholarshiped me for, for many years after that until he passed. Um, so I got the classical training on the piano as a kid. I joined band when I was in the fourth grade. And so I played all the low brass instruments along the way, continuing to sing along the way. And, and all of that. I also joined choir in middle school. So uh, band, choir, and piano have just kind of always been a part of my life. So when I finished high school, um, I went to the University of Southern Mississippi where I studied music education. And I knew at that point that I wanted to be a music teacher. And so I did that. I completed my bachelor's in music education. And then I went on to do a master in choral conducting, a master's degree in choral conducting, and also at the University of Southern Mississippi. Uh, from there, I moved to Memphis where I taught high school choir for many years. I really enjoyed doing that. So when I moved to Memphis, my passion for music shifted. Um, It didn't wane, but it shifted as I realized that students from one side of town did not have the same access to music and music education as students from other parts of town. And so I became really passionate about leveling the field, so to speak, in music education. to ensure that every student um, had access to high quality music education. And so um, I thought I would go and get a DMA in choral conducting and be a director of choral activities at a major university. And I am doing that now. Uh, But my degree path ended up being a PhD in music education, um, a research degree where I began to study music in urban schools, where I began to um, really get to the nitty gritty about regarding the disparities that exist uh, in different kinds of schools uh, and how we can bridge that gap, so to speak. So um, when I left my doctoral program at the University of Memphis, uh, my first job was at the University of Arkansas. And so I've been here, I'm going into my eighth year at the U of A. Um, And one of the beautiful things about the University of Arkansas is it allows me to put all of me 
uh, into the classroom and to do all the things about which I'm most passionate. So, for example, um, I conduct a gospel choir here at the University of Arkansas. I conduct traditional ensembles. I also teach the music education, the choral music education curriculum. So all of the folks who are going to go out and be future teachers, I'm able to kind of add my stamp to them and um, replicate myself in in, in my students, uh, which I think is really cool. Uh, and I hope that in some way, some shape, some form, uh, what I'm doing here will impact meaningfully the students of tomorrow. Yeah. So as a, a teacher right now, you get the chance, and as you did when you taught high school, you've kind of had the chance to inspire a lot of students to go on and do music in their lives. Who were some teachers or, or people in your upbringing, in your life, who sort of inspired you to, to be where you are right now? So I, it was my middle school choir director, I think, was the first major impacting force. Of course, my piano teachers and all those folks, they were, they were awesome. My middle school choir director, her name is Felicia Cooper. And Miss Cooper gave me all sorts of really cool opportunities. Like she allowed me to accompany the choir when I was you know, 11 in middle school. Like she'd give me the music and she'd force me to, to dig in and to, you know, sight read different pieces of music. We would do things from the hymnal. We would do things, you know, the octavos that we're working on in choir. So having those opportunities are really important. Um, and I also learned lots of character lessons from her uh, just in, you know, how to be, how to be a good human, how to, you know, treat people well and all of that. And what was real cool about her is that she was also the first black music director that I had in a school setting. And so knowing, you know, knowing that there's a black woman out here doing this is, is such an example, right. For me mm -hmm. to go and, and do that. And so she's always been a resource even today. Like I, I can, I can call her and, and we can have conversations about things. She's really impacted my life. Um, also, um, <clears throat> my collegiate music educators were very impactful in my life, my band directors in high school as well. Uh, but the, the next most meaningful person, Dr. Leo Davis, who was the minister of music at Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church in Memphis. And I tell people all the time, I learned so much about just music and music education and um, how to teach from this choir director at a church who's got folks from all walks of life in his choir and they're singing gospel music, but they're also singing Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven. And, um, and there's, and programming was impeccable. So I, I just learned so much from, from Leo as well. So I'd say now Leo is probably my biggest mentor and influence. Okay. That's really cool. So along with all the other really cool things that you've done, you were also the choral director at the Oklahoma Summer Arts Institute at Quartz Mountain just a couple of weeks ago. Um, that's how I met you. That's because I was there a couple of weeks ago. And at the Oklahoma Summer Arts Institute, um, one thing that a lot of the faculty members uh, and a lot of the leaders of the various disciplines, a lot of them will give these sort of presentations um, during the evenings. And a lot of people would do these sort of biography-type presentation about me, um, just sort of explaining their lives, like kind of like what you just did. Um, but you went a different direction, and it was, it was honestly really, really cool. Um, it was this presentation about the history of black music, so to speak, 
um, with kind of musical examples interspersed within this sort of speech you gave. So what about that subject did you find so important to tell to sort of young uh, high schoolers who were pursuing the arts? I think that people just don't talk about Black music enough, particularly in schools. And I think that as a Black educator, um, as a Black musician, I think it's my job to tell the story. Um, and one of the reasons people don't talk about it as much is because most most of most of Black music has been passed down through oral tradition, right? You know, somebody's grandmother told their kid who told their kid who told their kid, and that's how these things get passed down. Um, and not a lot of the history of Black music has been written down. And so for those of us who who have that lived experience, I think it's important for us to share that lived experience. Um, and I think that the information will die if people like me don't share, if we don't write these things down. Uh, one of the biggest regrets that I have, and I'll get back to, to, to Quartz Mountain, but one of the biggest regrets I have is that I was raised by my great aunt and her mother was a slave. Um, she died at the age of 90 when I was 21 years old, but I'm thinking back to this woman who was born in 1912, whose mother was an actual slave, grandmother, excuse me. Um, but how do you have that experience? How do you sit with all of that wisdom and history and not ask questions and write things down? Right? So I wish I'd had more conversations and I'd ask more questions about music and and things like that in general that, you know, she had this wealth of knowledge to share. Um, so having said that, I thought Quartz Mountain was a was an excellent opportunity to share some of those things. Um, I think it was a space that was that seemed to be open and receptive to that. And I and I thought, what better place to to share a little bit about my history and my music and um, the music of my culture than at a place like Quartz Mountain. Um, there are other spaces where I don't know that the stories would have been as well accepted. Um, Cause in that lecture, you know, I talk about slavery. I talk about the music of slavery, but I also talk about, you know, the music of um, um, America that sanctioned lynchings, right. Um, music of the civil rights movement, music um, and all of these different spaces and eras of black history and I think that having those conversations can be difficult in different spaces. I also think that when you add music to things, music has a way of softening the blow uh, and, and, and easing some of the conversations um, that you're having and assuaging some of the misgivings even that people might have. Um, so if I sing a song, Swing Low Sweet Chariot, and then I tell the story or vice versa, the music kind of puts into context and into a safer conversational space discussion content, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And honestly, as like an, an audience member during that presentation, that was, I mean, everyone was completely blown away. It was, it was incredible. Um, it was such a, like the intense atmosphere in the room, like instantly, instantly jumped. It was, it was wild. Um, I want to just kind of circle back to something you said um, in that answer, um, which was kind of 
uh, black music getting kind of passed up or ignored. Um, so what do you think is the importance right now of, of appreciating black music in the world today, uh, particularly music from the past that never really got a chance to be publicly recognized in its own time? Um, I think, I think you have to, and this is cliche, but I think you have to know, you have to know the past in order to build on that, to have a successful future. Um, and I think that with, with the lesser known black music, um, I think it's important to put that out there so people understand that there were people, um, you know, there were people writing spirituals in the 1900s. There were people, there were black people writing classical music, like Florence Price, for example. Um, and the, now there's a resurgence of Florence Price's work. Um, people are finding all of her violin concertos and her, you know, her choral works and her solo stuff and the symphonies that she's written. Um, that, and so you have to go and, and we, we've had to find all that music, right? All that handwritten stuff. In fact, we have a huge repository of, of Florence Price's handwritten music here at the University of Arkansas. So being, having people who are willing to go and do that research, having people who are willing to um, trace the spirituals back to like the Gullah and Geechee people in, in South Carolina and to, um, and to, you know, observe that preservation and to, and to see how many of those music traditions still exist and documenting that stuff, I think is just so important. Um, even the way that we approach spirituals now, um, you know, school choirs and church choirs and, you know, folks do spirituals all the time. They're, they're black arrangers of spirituals who even um, have taken the essence of the spiritual and have essentially whitewashed it. So for example, a Stacey Gibbs spiritual is going to take, it's going to take the lyrical content of the spiritual and perhaps the melody of the spiritual. But then the way that we sing them is very Western European, right? Mm. The way that we approach the singing of those songs, you hear opera singers singing spirituals all the time too. And what they're singing is incongruent with the performance practice of the field, right? There's no, you got no orchestra in a cotton field, right? Mm, yeah. You have no voice training, um, you know, as a slave. So the way that we approach singing, I think, makes it more palatable. Or, or um, like when you had the Fish Jubilee singers, for example, in the 1890s, they were very intentional about creating spirituals in such a way that when they were heard, they would be non-threatening. Um, they would be easier on the ears of the patrons. Um, and so I do think that some of it even was lost there. Uh, and so while you find the Fish Jubilee notebooks and you can see like the ways in which they preserve those things, I think, um, I think that there's, there's still lots more work to be done, uh, because there's been such a, there's been such an infiltration of non-Black music into the Black music genres, such that sometimes I think that some of the things are unrecognizable. And so I think it's important to continue for people to continue to do that research um, to ensure that those performance practice and those styles um, remain viable and active and present. Are there any good examples of ways or people who have kind of preserved the original essence of the, of the spiritual well into the modern day, or do you think it 
like, do you think there are, there are people who have done it well, or do you think it's too sort of, I don't know, mixed in? I think it's quite convoluted now. And, uh, but there are people who do that kind of research. So, um, you had John work who again was there with the fish Jubilee singers and he, he did a lot of that. And so a lot of that work has been preserved. Uh, but now you have, um, Eileen Southern, um, wrote a series of books about the music of black folks. Um, and so her stuff is, she's, she's kind of the main, um, preserver of, or one of the first and one of the most prolific preservers of that music. But now you have people like Andre Thomas who are doing that work. Um, he's a retired director of choral activities at Florida state, um, and is now traveling all over writing and, and doing all that stuff. And then his students are now doing some of that work now, particularly, um, in the realm of gospel music. Um, a lot of that work has been done on the spiritual side, but there are people out now like Brandon Waddles, who is at Wayne state university, um, who is, you know, he's a generation behind me, but he's doing some, some significant work, um, in that area. Um, I'd like to think that I'm doing some of that work now and preserving gospel music. Um, because that's the thing is that it just, it just hasn't been written down. And so I think for us, for my generation and the people who come behind me to, to go back, do that research and then write it down, I think is a boon to the profession as a whole, but specifically the, the preservation of gospel music and spirituals and other music of black folk in general. So something you've been talking about throughout this interview and something you talked about a lot at the um, presentation you gave at Oklahoma Summer Arts Institute was about um, it was about black music, of course, but it was also a lot about black history and sort of mm-hmm. and and all of that. So, how strong do you think the connection is between the two, and what do you think that African American music through the years can tell us about the history of the African American experience uh, through throughout all of American history? Um, I think for I, I think the black experience is inextricably linked to black music. I think, I think when you look at the history of black folk in America, um, or just in general, pre, pre, pre slavery, pre diaspora, um, there's so much music linked to, to what we do. Um, so in the presentation, I spoke about how, the slaves on the ships that were being transported across the Atlantic would, you know, sing to find each other, sing to find their family members, um, sing to, um, to express sorrow and despair. Um, they would use singing to pass the time in the fields, um, or as forms of entertainment. Um, they would, uh, post-slavery singers would sing songs of protest and not just, um, and not just in the church while the church was very, uh, was integral to the black music process in that, you know, at church people could, you know, they could sing sorrowfully, but they could also sing joyful, joyfully in worship and those sorts of things. But outside of the church, people could sing songs of protest. James Brown did this, um, Earth, Wind, and Fire wrote protest songs. Even, you know, Michael Jackson wrote protest songs. Beyonce is writing protest songs even now. Um, 
and so you know Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation, like all of those things are are songs of protest. But again, I think that there are things that music can do that ordinary conversations at the dinner table can't even scratch the surface, right? I can get into an argument on Facebook with someone about a thing and it can get it can get real ugly real fast. But I can sing about that same thing and it's it's a little bit lighter and um, a little bit more acceptable to have those conversations in song. Um, and so I think there's not a way to talk about Black history without linking it, connecting it to the music that was also happening in that historical time period. Um, so, so yes, they go hand in hand. I have a couple follow-up questions uh, that are kind of loosely related. If Is there... I don't even know how to phrase it, but like, could you, if you had to try to quantify it, is there some like individual quality or something that distinguishes African American music from all other music? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I would say, and this is, you know, this is, this is a pretty strong point I'm going to make, but I don't think that it is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. All of the uniquely American genres of music, with the exception of the music that comes from Native Americans, all of that music can be traced back to Black slave music. So when we talk about so authentically American music genres, rock and roll has its roots in Black music. Blues has its roots in Black music. Uh, obviously the Black genres, but jazz has roots in Black music. So these are authentically American American genres. Country music evolved differently and in a different way, but still has some roots in the interaction between white slave masters and Black slaves, right? Um, so I think American music at face value in some way, shape or form can all be traced back to music of the African diaspora. And I, yeah, I think, I think American music all has its roots in black music. And I think, um, all other, I think the differentiation is that everything else that we do has roots, has European roots, or, um, you know, we've got K-pop, which has not European roots, but, Mm -hmm. you know, Korean roots. But like, I think everything else, because like America is a melting pot, I think, I think all of the other forms of music have, have roots from other places. But I think that the authentic American art forms all have their roots in black music. So I think that's the difference. Okay. Um, so the next question um, is sort of about gospel music and specifically gospel choral music. So just mm-hmm. for people listening who might not know, uh, would you mind just explaining kind of what gospel music is, how it's different from like spirituals, just kind of just a, a, a little explanation of that? Yeah. So gospel music um, started happening after slavery, and it was actually birthed from is actually birthed from the music of the, of the juke joints. And so um, the father of gospel music, his name is Thomas Dorsey. Um, he was known by his, uh, his nightclub name, 
Georgia Tom. And so he was a blues and jazz pianist and, and he played in these nightclubs and what have you. And he incorporated the traditional like Christian hymn lyrics over this, over this juke joint music mm-hmm. and became gospel music. And so early gospel music, it was interesting too, because, um, because black people over the years have tended to to be more conservative and when it came to things of the church you know you had to, like once you started bringing in drums and like guitars and stuff you know the 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 older folk would be like you know that's of the devil mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Uh, and so it took a long time for for some of that stuff to to really catch on uh but gospel music is is typically characterized by three part harmony uh, it is typically cata- characterized by um, a lot of chest voice singing, um, charismatic di- directing styles. Um, the gospel vamp is a big deal. Um, so you have, you know, your your verses and then you have your chorus and then there's usually some sort of vamp um, that could last for two minutes or 30 Um uh, Fast songs are, are characterized by hand claps. Uh, if, if you're doing a song in 4-4 four, four time, the claps got to happen on 2 and 4, mm-hmm. right? If you're doing a 6-8 kind of thing, the claps happen on 2 and 3 and then 5 and 6. So, mm, bah, bah, mm, bah, bah, that sort of thing. Um, never on beat one. Uh, and it's uh, the solo singing is characterized by um, usually melismatic singing, um, powerful, long notes, um, ad-libbing in terms of creating, um, using, using scripture or using lived experiences to fill in the gaps and like call and response type things. Um, uh, one, one gospel song that comes to mind is, uh, a song called Jesus Will Work It Out. And so you get to the end of this song and everybody's clapping and singing and the choir just goes, work it out, do, 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 do. work it out. And the solos is just like, you know, work it out. How are you going to pay your bills? Mm-hmm. And she's like talking about, you know, her own lived experience, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of gospel music will incorporate that. Incorporate that. Um, these lived experiences, not unlike the spirituals, though, right? Um, the spirituals would take Bible stories and and merge them with lived experiences. I think the biggest difference between gospel music and spirituals is that gospel uh, spirituals, in their truest form, are going to be largely unaccompanied. Um, they have arranged spirituals now that are kind of hybrids, where you have like you know pianos and stuff like that. But um, spirituals are, are are typically going to be a bit more somber. They're going to have a purpose while they may have um, lyrical content that talks about things like heaven and things like that. It was sung from a very different perspective and at a very different place. Um, so when we're singing about glory land, for example, we could be talking about heaven. We could be talking about freedom and there's hope there. Um, but it's, it's largely coming from a place of oppression, um, despair, and those are going to be heavier. And again, largely unaccompanied. Uh, where your gospel music is going to be more exuberant, more God-centered, more, you know, here's here's my hope in Christ, or here's my hope in, uh, you know, no matter what my situation looks like right now, I know that Jesus can work it out, or I mm-hmm. know that God will be, Jesus can be a fence. Or... Okay. So 
I, I, yeah, that, that's that's a good way of putting it. I remember in um, while at Oklahoma Summer Arts Institute, while you were explaining the order that we were singing some of the songs on one of the weeks, you said that um, a lot of choral directors kind of pick a gospel music, a choral gospel song, and they throw it at the end to be the big kind of happy celebrate uh, closer. Um, and you kind of implied that that sort of misrepresented the genre uh, and kind of oversimplified things. And I was wondering if you could just sort of elaborate on that. Yeah. Everybody wants, you know, as a, as a choir director, when we program, you know, we want to have a killer opener and we want to have a killer closer, right? Um, and depending on what that is, you know, it can it can be fine to have a gospel piece at the end. Um, but I think it doesn't always have to go there. Um, I will often see on these forums on social media, like a choir director will come on and they'll be like, hi, I'm looking for a fun closer for my, for my concert. I'd love to do a spiritual or a gospel song mm-hmm. or a piece of world music. Um, but, you know, pieces of music that we think the audience are going to get in, the audience is going to get into, they're going to clap, they're going to have fun. But I think that, yes, while some of this music can be fun, I think it's important to really make sure that we're doing the research of the performance practice, of the history, of the places from which this music comes. And so I'll see people singing songs about, you know, Wade in the Water, and they're incorporating snaps and claps. <laughs> yeah. Right? And and it's so inappropriate, but it's like, oh, this is fun, and the audience is going to like it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it does a disservice to the music. I think it... Um, it cheapens the music and it misrepresents what the history of those pieces are. I think if you're going to do that, I think it's fine. In that concert, I was going to start, um, I was going to start with that Richard Smallwood anthem of praise. Um, and I ended up not doing that, um, because of the level of excitement I thought that that piece was going to bring. Mm-hmm you know, maybe our inability to sing the next five pieces. <laughs> on. Um, so I made a strategic decision, but you'll note that I didn't, I still didn't put that song last. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just think it's important that, you know, the, the, the strategy of putting a piece in a particular order, I think is just as important as the, the pieces that you're choosing, the repertoire that you're selecting anyway. I think the placement is just as important, but I do think that if you're going to put a piece like that last, there's nothing really on its face wrong with that. Um, if the teacher has done the due diligence of researching the tune and, and educating the students about why we're singing this tune and what its meaning is and making sure that we're not using inappropriate performance practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one thing that you had said earlier in that answer was that it it can sometimes kind of cheapen or misrepresent the truth of that work or genre. Um, I guess what I was wanting to ask was this sort of, I don't know if you would call it a movement, but the kind of trend of including a lot of gospels or spirituals as the, as the final song, it exposes audiences to a lot more gospel music and spiritual music than they otherwise would have heard. But mm-hmm. when they're getting it, they're often getting it in a sort of, as you said, cheapened form. Do you think, and th- this might be kind of a weird question, do you think that this is like a net positive or a net negative for the these genres as a whole and 
sort of how the 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 public kind of interacts with them or views them um i think it's a net positive as long as there are people like you who are gonna do the work to make sure that it's done properly as long as there there are people like you who will ask questions and who will seek to do justice to the music um I have seen the situations where, you know, folks are trying to do it. It's an afterthought. It wasn't well-planned. And then what people see and what people hear is an inaccurate depiction Mm -hmm. of what what the genre is, what the genre should be. And I think then people will go on to make decisions and judgments based on that incorrect sonic depiction of, oh, yeah. of 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 the of the genre um which is why i try to whenever i go do it in the most authentic way possible um and it was really interesting even after quartz mountain to hear people say i've never really listened to gospel music before but now i'm adding it to my playlist or i've never really sung mm-hmm. gospel now i love it um one of the students in the quartz mountain uh choir was was like, I never really sang gospel music, but I'm coming to University of Arkansas and I want to sing in your gospel choir, right? And so just being exposed in a positive way and then and and being exposed in a positive and authentic way, I think helps the music to speak for itself and helps people buy into what it is and how beautiful and how life-giving it can be. So just to kind of close things out, I do have one last question. So we've talked, obviously, a lot about black music throughout this interview. And I was wondering that if you could have everyone listening to this podcast right now, uh, after this podcast is over, go out and listen to, it could be one artist, one album, or one song, just to sort of broaden their horizons or, or something like that. Um, what or who do you think it would be? And, and and why would you pick that? Um, I would say I'm going to give you two folks. I would say a good start. Oh, I can't give you just <laughs> you could however many you want, but uh, you know I'm going to I'm going to give you three. Okay. All right. Uh, I think good starting places for gospel music for modern gospel music are going to be um, Kirk Franklin. Kirk Franklin is and Kirk Franklin's kind of the. I'm calling him the father of modern gospel music. He's uh, he is uh, sponsoring a group now called Maverick City. They're actually on tour right now, and he's passing the mantle to them. Maverick City just won a Grammy for um, for best um, Christian music project this past okay. year. Wow! But Kirk Franklin is an amazing songwriter, um, and his lyrical content has just been really consistently good over the years. Like I was listening to Kirk Franklin as a kid, and just listening to how his music has evolved over the years, I think is just amazing. Um, Donald Lawrence, I think is another person who is an amazing songwriter. He's an amazing gospel music choral technician. So any, any choir that he works with is going to be good. Um, we actually did a Donald Lawrence piece mm-hmm. um, at, uh, at our conference or at our concert. Um, the Jehovah Sabaoth is his, but his catalog is just amazing as well. Donald Lawrence, um, 
is has just celebrated 35 years in music ministry. Oh, wow. That's a lot. He's doing an album here soon. Um, the man looks like he's 40, but he's, he's in his sixties now and just still, still doing it. Um, and then Richard Smallwood is probably my all time favorite gospel artist. So I'm a little biased, but again, amazing songwriter. And he merges, he was his undergraduate degree is in piano performance and he has a master's degree in that as well. So classically trained musician who then incorporates that classical sound into his gospel music writing. We did two of his pieces at the Quartz Mountain. The Total Praise was his and, okay. um, and the Anthem of Praise that we did for Richard Smallwood. Wow, yeah. No, I remember preparing for the the camp and watching videos of him, of Richard Smallwood, and his, if it's the guy I'm thinking of, his energy is just like through the roof. Yeah. It's yeah. All, It's awesome to watch. Um, he is amazing. Yeah. And I've had a pleasure. I had, I have had the pleasure of working in some capacity with two of those folks. Uh, and just the, like for Richard Smallwood, just working with him and being able to learn from him has been an invaluable experience for me as a, as a gospel musician. Um, is there anything you'd like to say to the people listening before, before we sign off? Um, yeah, uh, with with gospel music, I think there there are different kinds and different flavors, and I think it's an important part of American history. Um, spirituals, I think, are also an important part of American history. So I think that um, the more we can study it, not just during Black History Month or at Juneteenth, but the more that we can just make it a part of our everyday musical palette, you know, putting putting it on your iPad, one song here, one song there. I said iPad. Putting it on your playlist. Yeah. <laughs> I just showed my age. Um, but, you know, just, just immersing yourself in it. Um, I think that there's something in the realm of Black music that's for everyone. And so take the time, explore, and um, and enjoy it. It's worth, it's worth enjoying. Okay. Well, thank you again so much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. I'm so glad that, to, that I had the opportunity and that you invited me to do it. Thank you for listening to Where Words Fail, a podcast about music, episode one. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends to listen as well. I'll see you next time.